Welcome to the Stepping In a Podcast. I'm Renee Schulte. And I'm Jason Haglund. We're here to dive deep into the complex, often overwhelming world of behavioral health systems, structures, and the never-ending barriers. That's right, Jason. We know firsthand the challenges individuals and families face when trying to access and navigate the behavioral health system. We want to save you from stepping in the crap we've encountered with many of our clients. Together, we'll be shedding light on the issues and opportunities within the behavioral health system. By sharing stories, discussing policy implications, we will offer up valuable insights and practical solutions for improving the system at every level. So grab a cup of coffee or something stronger, or in Jason's case, a venti peppermint mocha. Sit back and get ready to step in the world of behavioral health with the Stepping In It podcast. Welcome and thanks for joining us for episode one. Today, we're going to talk to you about why stepping in it and how in the world did we get here? Renee, did you ever think you'd be doing a podcast with a farmer? Podcasts? Yes. With a farmer? Not so much, but I'm excited to be here. I am excited to be here as well. And, you know, as we kind of talked about doing this podcast it kind of took me back, and and I'm I'm thinking about the first time we talked about doing a podcast. You remember Renee where we were when we first you you pitched this idea that we should do a podcast. I do. I remember we were in the middle of nowhere, Minnesota. I think we had a Toyota Forerunner as a rental because uh-huh. we had rented that to get up to northern Minnesota because we we're working on a project there, right yep. within Behavioral Healthcare, of course, and we're clear up in the middle of nowhere. And do you, do you remember that I often talk about this? I have this rule when I travel about my GPS. What what is my rule about a GPS, Renee? Yeah, he has an iPhone. And so he's always telling us how, you know, some people are really picky about the route they choose and they get judgy about the other two options. So to instill this upon in his life, he always takes the road less traveled. I didn't really believe him until we were in Minnesota. I have to live my life with intention, Renee. And so if I tell people it's about the journey, right? And not just about getting there as quickly as possible. I have to live those values. And so it's true. And it just happened to be we had a Toyota 4Runner. Um, so the dirt trail that Apple Maps took me on was really great as we were trying to find that restaurant that evening. And I remember when we drove around the tree that was blocking the road, um, <laughs> that I'm like, this may be going a little too far um, with the living with intention and it being about the journey. But you know, I think that kind of sums up um, the work that we do, that that really this whole experience is about the journey and how do we really think about and talk about the things we do. And, and from that day in rural Minnesota, where we started talking about, you know, we should share these stories. We should talk about the road less traveled uh, because so many people are on that road less traveled. And so, you know, as I think about what we're doing here today and how we're enjoying the journey, and how we're going to share some of that information that we've learned, um, the challenges that we've faced um, over the course of the last several years as, as we think about the work we've done, or actually decades of work that we've done in this space, it really makes me excited. And so I think about moving forward, that iPhone and a G- GPS and those premises that we have, we think about how do we move forward? Tell me, Renee, as as we're driving in that in that forerunner, or as we think about moving forward today, wh- where did we extend on to the stepping in it? So one of the things we found out, and my actual favorite part of that story is, I was really hungry, and it took forever to get to dinner. But then we took like the fast road back, and it seriously was like what ten minutes, 
And yeah. so it just made me laugh because it was like such a long journey there, but a quick journey back. And so how we got to stepping in it is a lot of times in behavioral health, when we work around the Midwest and in places, we work mostly in places that are rural or remote or even frontier, uh, we get there and people think the issue is one thing. But when we also start talking to people, get stakeholders involved, we actually really step into a much bigger mess than most people even realize is there. And that's actually the part I think is the most fun and the most challenging about the work we do. And so we started by thinking about stepping in it because we're willing to go that extra mile through those really hard places and have conversations with people that a lot of folks will want to Zoom in or just phone in where we actually do the travel and it makes it a whole lot more fun. It's true. And so, you know, as a farmer background growing up, having cattle, you know, we'd walk across the pasture and we'd know if you stepped in it, right? You knew <laughs> it, right? And I think right. so oftentimes in rural, remote and frontier communities, nobody actually goes and listens and sits down with those directly impacted or with purpose to understand that it's different, um, how communities sometimes implement programs or what's available in rural communities. It's different. And so the only way to really understand those things is to get out in those communities. And I think that's one of the things that really um, gives me passion about the stuff that we do is we get out there and actually go to those communities. We don't. We just don't sit somewhere in, in a home office and write reports and yeah. say, this is what's best practice. This is what you should do. Um, yeah. You know, and we see a lot of those reports. Uh, oftentimes the reports on a shelf and I'm sure we'll have an episode dedicated to reports on a shelf. I can't um, wait. My favorite topic, my favorite topic. <laughs> We're thinking about, too, you know, when we are willing to go out, some people get embarrassed of how big of the mess is, or they want you to see the good side, right? They want you to see the new shiny building or the new shiny program. And that it's really important to talk about the part that isn't working, the part that's not real. And But they're not going to do that if you're talking a long distance or whatever. As long as they can hide that and stay behind the bet, you know, what they think looks good, Oftentimes we do, but in the work we do, it's really important to get behind that level. So it is important that we go and step in that huge mess, step right in the crap and figure out what can we do to make it better? Because people that we want to serve, and that's the whole purpose of this, right, is we want to serve people where they are and make sure that they have access to the services that government should provide and to make sure that they know how to get them. And the only way to do that is to clean up those messes. And so we've got to get into the actual weeds and go working on it and fix it. And so that's what I get most excited about. So Jason, tell us, how in the world did you become the khaki farmer? Where in the world did that come from? That's that's fantastic, right? You know, it, this is going to be hard to believe, but I didn't set out to be a farmer. Um, I grew up on a farm, um, helping my dad farm, had pigs I took and showed at the county fair every year in 4-H. <laughs> but, you know, so, soon after I graduated from high school, I went, I went to college, got my bachelor's degree in psychology and got my master's degree in counseling, um, actually in Pennsylvania, where I did mobile crisis work worked with adolescents and kind of my passion was working in the behavioral health sector. And so in doing direct care and those types of things, you know, all the time I'd come back and help my dad. And, you know, uniquely, uh, we were one of those families impacted by the farm crisis in the 80s. So certainly I'm sure that had a lot to do with my interest in emotional well-being, especially in agricultural mm. communities mm -hmm. because of the impact um, right. that had on communities, you know, the entire business sector to farmers directly. Um, and so 
unfortunately, during that time period, my dad had a farm sale. And I remember riding in the tractor with him when I was probably eight years old and he was parking equipment in the neighbor's fence line. I'm like, well, why are we parking all our equipment there? He goes, well, don't worry about it. And it was because he was having a farm sale and he was keeping enough equipment back that we could keep farming because um, he had to file bankruptcy. And so those little things have impacts on you for the long haul. And so after that, my dad became an executive. He actually worked at one of the largest banks in the country as a trust officer managing farms. Um, and so he worked in, in, in downtown Des Moines. And so he would farm in the weekends and evenings, right? And so um, much like I do today, when he would come home and farm, he'd always wear his old dress shirts, right? So mm-hmm. he'd, he'd always be out, out on the farm because he had because he'd wear a suit every day. So he'd always have old dress shirts that were worn out. And so he'd always be the nicest dressed farmer in the tractor, right? Because <laughs> it would be these, you know, nicely pressed white shirts. Um, and so it was kind of funny. And then I found myself as I came back, I moved back to the Midwest and as I started farming more, I found myself wearing old khakis for that. <laughs> that were worn out from work, right? They get a little frayed at the bottom and so you can't wear them to work anymore, right? And so I'd be wearing dockers or whatever else out on the farm. And so my neighbor started calling me the khaki farmer because I would always have an old polo shirt on and khaki pants when I was out working on equipment or driving the tractor. And so that's where it started, right? And so then as I took a greater interest in the family farm and as we did our own succession planning and and now my brother-in-law and I, um, are, are managing a fairly large operation, um, row crop farming here in Iowa. And so it, it's kind of funny. Actually, my neighbors here in town often joke that sometimes I work on my boat in my blue jeans, but I go farm in my khaki pants. Um, so it's kind of irony all the way around, Renee. But that's where it came from. And so I finally just embraced this whole thing. I spent years as an executive and I would secretly farm on the weekends um, yeah. because I'm like, well, that's just, that's just my side gig. They don't, it doesn't have anything to do with behavioral health. And it's only been in the last five years that I've realized that, well, being a farmer and talking about emotional well-being is huge. And so we've really yeah. started to talk about yeah. in rural communities. Right. Even I have been a victim of stigma and not talking about how important those things are together. Right. So talk about that a little bit. So we've had some we've had some contracts and some work that we've done where being a farmer actually was really, really important to us getting the work and actually making inroads and making progress. So what is it about being a farmer in those rural communities that helps you connect differently at a different level than some other people? Well, you know, farmers get more respect than any other occupation. Um, You know, there's been some studies done that, that just show how, you know, farmers have a greater level of engagement and, and and respect across other community members. And so we think about the stability traditionally of farmers and how how they how they view the world of, of how they have to adapt. And you know, I know certainly in future podcasts we're going to talk a little bit about being able to control what you can control. Right. And so farmers are really experts at that because there's so much out of our control. I can't control the weather. I can't control the rainfall. I can't control the hailstorm or a tornado or a derecho. But there's lots of things I can control, like nutrients. And so, you know, we really have evolved over the last 15 or 20 years in the level of things that we do to the soil, the things that we can now do to the plants um, to maximize them. And so it's no different than some of the projects we do, that sometimes we get stuck on the things we can't control and we forget about all the things that we can manage, the things we can manage up, the things that we can use. And so as a farmer, I think I have a unique perspective and, and I've learned to manage and figure things out over the course of the years. And maybe that's made me a little more readily to to think about how can we do that differently in other sectors as well. 
Yeah. And so you start thinking about that. And I know that you and I have talked about this over time, but where people in rural America go for their supports and their help is different, especially from the farming community, right? And we know, we at least I think most people know that the farming suicide is pretty high I mean, in that farming agriculture community. And so thinking about and being out of the box on where do we go to help find supports for people, right, is different when you're looking at it from that rural lens. And so it doesn't matter really what type of farmer somebody is, right? There's like a whole different level of supports and a different level of places they would go to look for resources, right? And I know that's one of the things we want to talk about and get kind of deeper in as we move ahead. Yeah. And we think about farmers, ranchers, and even egg workers, you know, across the country, there, there's egg, agriculture impacts every community at a high rate when it comes to rural areas. And so whether, whether you work in a manufacturing industry or at an ethanol plant or you're a day laborer, there are lots of different labels for farmers and ranchers um, and, and folks who work out with the land or based in agriculture. So it's really important we take into consideration everyone. And sometimes the isolation that comes along with that. And we hear a lot more about isolation these days. So I think those are going to be some great things you're going to be hearing about from us as we kind of bring in some of these different perspectives. Right. And and when I worked in the legislature, and we'll talk about that here more in a minute, but when I was a legislature, just thinking about all the other types of industry that exists in our state and many other Midwestern states just to support the agricultural community. So yes, there's all these different levels of folks that actually farm, but then, you know, all the banking industry and the insurance and just all these other industries that wouldn't exist if we didn't have that basic underlying commodities and all the things that go on in our state. And so, you know, I lived in Eastern Iowa and the city, basically the entire infrastructure of that city was there to support the rural crops and the rural, you know, farming establishments. And we don't always think about that. So even if you're a person listening to this podcast and you're like, well, I'm not a farmer, I don't understand. Well, if you live anywhere close to any place that has farming, you have no idea how much your life and the the services provided are integrated into that farming community. And it's really important to think about rural and what is an impact there. And if if farming wasn't there, uh, lots of other things would go away. And I don't think we in the city think about that near as much as we should. Well, and and I would suggest that if you have a plant in your house, then you're a farmer. And so if you try to keep that plant alive, I think you know how complicated it can be because it's all about sunlight and, and moisture management and nutrient management. And so whether you're whether you're only growing a house plant, um, you know, I think you need I think this podcast is for you because we're gonna make a lot of connections that are just down to earth. Um, and I think that's what's really important sometimes is is getting back down to earth and some of our ideas and implementation plans because sometimes we we get we get out of line we get out of alignment um with reality and so sometimes you know that's one of the things that that we really ground ourselves in is just being candid right and we're going to talk a little bit um more about that as we go along through these through these episodes but one of the things that Renee and I really proud ourselves on is just being candid right being very direct and upfront um and kind of cutting through some of that stuff if we're not sure someone really knows what's going on so Renee, do you want to share with us just a little bit about how you got to be here today? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. So I call myself a rep- recovering politician, and there's just a few things people should know about that. First of all, being in politics was never, ever on my life's journey, um, my dream of life. In fact, 
I took as little history and absolutely as little government as I needed to do through high school and college to even graduate because I didn't even appreciate any of that. And I grew up in a state where a lot of our governors actually went to jail. And so that really wasn't on the top 10 for my family and for me. So I never even dreamed of that that would be something that came across my path. But later in life, I had been a therapist for a long time. And there was this family in my church that got really invested in in the political situation in our community and came up to me and talked to me about running for office. And I mean, I was like, there's no way, but they invited me to this lunch and um, I will never forget this, but I get invited to this lunch and I show up and I realize then how involved they were in the community with politics. I did not, except, you know, there's all these pictures of, of the person with uh, presidents and stuff behind their chair. And I was like, uh Oh, and there's a re- retiring Senator sitting next to me. And they sit and look at me and they're like, you, you're going to be our next state senator. And I absolutely never had had the thought. And I remember sitting there excusing myself going to the bathroom because I was pretty sure I was going to throw up. And I was like, what is happening? And I came back and that senator said to me, "Um, if you ran for office, why would you run? And I said, well, if I were going to run, I'd fix the mental health system, to which he said, nobody runs to do that. And I'm like, well, then I'm not going to do it because I don't really want to be a politician, but I'd go to fix a system that's really broken. And by that point in time, we had foster kids in our system. We couldn't get the the paperwork we needed to get them the schooling they needed. Uh, We were just it was just a mess. And so I knew from as a therapist in our state that things just weren't right. And so I was like, well, I don't really care to be a politician, but if I'm going to run for office, then I'd have an opportunity to fix things. And I quickly got involved in thinking about it from a policy perspective. I had always helped people kind of one-on-one, family to family, but I had never really thought about it from, you know, if you fix policy, you can change a lot of things for a lot of people. And I was very policy-minded, which I didn't really know. People saw something in me that I didn't see. So when I got elected, and that's the one thing I did, I really focused in my campaign on mental health. And at that point in time, this has been over a decade ago now, that's not something we talked about all the time. There weren't television ads, there weren't campaign mailers about mental health. It just wasn't a thing. And so I was up there beating my own drum, just doing my own thing and had the opportunity working alongside the governor's office and um, the other chamber. I was in the minority party at the time, but I had the opportunity to to redesign a mental health system. And so that's what I focused on. I did not get distracted on a lot of other things. Um, there was a couple issues we could talk about later uh, that got pulled along the way. But <laughs> there are a couple things. Um, yeah, the people should have just left me alone. I was one of those sleeping bears where if I had just stayed asleep, it would have been good for them. But no, they had to poke it. And so then we had to deal with it. But generally speaking, I just did mental health and we did stakeholder meetings and just all the things to redesign. And for those of you that are not from the state of Iowa or don't know, we used to be a 99 county system where every county could do its own thing, uh, had its own property tax dollars that paid for everything. And it was a mess. And county supervisors, bless their hearts, were in charge of the system. And they would be a lot of people, a lot of farmers, a lot of bankers, a lot of teachers, a lot of people who had nothing to do with behavioral health. And in many, many cases, didn't want anything to do with it, but it came on their plate. And so I'd go to big meetings with county supervisors and there would be long lines of people just begging me to please fix this so they didn't have to be in charge because they don't know what to do. And you know, they don't know how to help, but they know people need help, but they need to figure out how to do it better. And then there'd be other communities that thought they knew what was going on and thought the whole world to do it like them. And so it was quite a challenge to try to get both of those done. And so you had some people really ticked off that you weren't going to do it their way. 
And you had other people that are saying, please take it away from me. But one of the things that always fueled me, I'll never forget this, but there was one small community in Southeast Iowa that said to me that, you know, they used their behavioral health dollars that should be used for substance treatment to buy a police car so people could sober up in the back. And that just hurt my heart. And I'd hear story after story about just misuse of funding, people not getting the services they needed. And so we we dove in to try to get a standard set of core services that no matter where you lived in the state, you would have access to. And that was the beginning of a huge push toward where we live today. And then through the years since that time, I got to write all the rules for the laws I passed. And I have not met anybody else in the country that have got both sides of that. So that's really odd. And then I got to go into the lobby and work with some very specific and special clients on continuing to advocate for things. So we, as the program has improved, we've done crisis services and um, services for people with complex needs and then got to a children's service. And I actually ran for office to fix the children's system. But I was told I couldn't do that until I fixed the adult. And I didn't get to do that in office. So it was a lot of years later by the time we started working on children's. And so I've been very blessed and very grateful to be able to be part of a system that we've been changing for all this time. So it's been a long time to get here. But all of those mean people along the way and all of the pushing and partisan baloney is the reason I'm recovering because I don't want anything to do with that anymore, Jason. I've just kind of had it with politics. You know, and I think that's the hard part about change is the resistance. Um, even good change renders a lot of resistance sometimes. And you know, I remember I, I was a I was in leadership at a at a provider agency, and so sometimes we'd have meetings about what's Renee proposing today, um, because <laughs> sure you, you know, the, you know, I'm there sure were lots of associations that were tracking you very closely, Renee. You know, oh and I gosh. think that's the hard part of changing systems, right? Is that resistance that comes along, and sometimes yeah. it's just because of doing something different is scary. It may be better, maybe better for everyone, but it's still scary. And so we have to acknowledge I, yeah. fear. I cannot tell you how many times I said there was nobody that liked the system. I never heard one person that liked it. But as soon as we were going to change it, holy cow, right? And so I'd have to say, no, you didn't like it. And I'd have to remind them why they didn't like it. And I, but it would be, we would go through it. No, we're all going to go this way. The other thing that I learned is, we were going in a general direction of change, but I couldn't be too specific in exactly what I personally wanted because that wasn't the point either. It, we were all going to like move a big ship in a direction, but it couldn't be just what I wanted, right? A lot of people needed a lot of things. And so it had to be much more collaborative and we had to figure out those pieces. And so we talk about collaborative strategies because I've lived it, right? There was no way to get that legislation done by myself. Yes, I led it, but there was hundreds of people involved in that. And when, like to Jason's point, how many stupid meetings did I hold? I think of myself, what an idiot. I had 7.30 a.m. meetings like twice a week through legislative session. And now I'm a lobbyist and I don't go to the Capitol at 7.30 ever. I don't even know what I was thinking. And so, I mean, just the commitment of people and the perseverance that people followed in the yeah, we'll talk later about some stories. There was one particular um, person to remain nameless. I got really mad that my meetings got bigger than theirs. Um, through that process and kind of took it personal. It was pretty funny. But anyway, yeah, we got a lot of good things done. And then since then, though, man, people continued on the path and continue. So one of the things I'm most proud of today is actually, if you looked at the last campaign, uh, the last election cycle, people had more stuff about mental health on every single flyer. You basically cannot run for office now and not talk mental health. And I believe that's part of the work that you helped us do. You as an advocate, Jason, and all the providers that came alongside with us, we changed the dialogue in our state. 
And now 10 years later, people talk about this. It's more open. Yeah, we still have stigma, but man, have we come a long way. And it's just so good to see that we are actually now talking about these things because, I mean, it was a, it was a lonely road for a while there way back in the day when there was just well, a few of us. You know, I ha- I can't help but think it, it, you went the road less traveled. And so I think that really encapsulates what we're doing on this podcast moving forward is really looking at how could you take the road less traveled and get the greatest impact. And, you know, Renee, I think your background really shows us that that you can go at this in a lot of different ways, but we have to remember it's going to take time um, and it takes persistence mm-hmm. and, and it takes getting people together and working toward a common goal. And so I really think as we think about moving forward of how we can help folks listening to us on this podcast, you know, it is, you know, follow us at realpolicypartners.com, get on LinkedIn, get on Facebook, you know, and send us your ideas and thoughts, because those are the things we want to talk about mm-hmm. um, as we go through this, is how can we help folks who are on that less traveled path find a way forward, um, because we can get them to their destination. It just looks differently, right? And it looks different in rural areas. And I think that's what we've learned over the course of time. That's what you learned yeah. um, as you had those meetings. Um, you know, what happened in the biggest county of the state was very different than what happened um, oh, in those definitely. very rural areas yeah. of the state. And creating um, some consistency and access for everyone was a real challenge. It's still a challenge today, you know, and we're a decade into some of those policies that are still being implemented because it's hard. It's hard work and it's challenging work. And so it it never ends, right, Renee? No. And I think about that. And we have so many good laws on the books, and many, many states do, but it's the implementation piece that matters. And that really is where Jason and I are today. Uh, for a long time, we've talked about, you know, changing policies. And sometimes you still need to go fix something that's just wrong. But generally speaking, it's not at that policy level anymore. Now it's just the boots on the ground. It's that stepping into the muck and actually getting it fixed. And so we've now shifted, kind of pivoted into that implementation piece. It's going to take all of us because we have tons of obstacles. And you may be sitting there thinking of those off the top of your head, right? Funding, workforce, just windshield time. I mean, we can name them all if we're rural. We know what we're talking about, but there's still answers. And so it takes having a vision. It takes having a positive attitude and willing to get out of the box and to be creative. And we're going to be talking about that moving forward. So I just want to say thanks, Jason. This was a lot of fun. And I look forward to episode two and actually getting this podcast off the ground. Thanks so much, everybody. Thank you for joining us on our episode of the Stepping In It podcast. We hope that our discussions and insights have provided you with a deeper understanding of the Bay Rail system and the challenges it presents. Remember, we're here to help you navigate the complexities that keep your shoes clean from avoiding stepping into the crap we've encountered through our careers. If you have any questions or you want to recommend to us what products you use to keep your boots clean, we're open to that. And we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us at ruralpolicypartners.com or follow us on Facebook or LinkedIn. Stay tuned for more thought-provoking conversations, expert interviews, and practical solutions in the episodes to come. Together, we can work towards creating a more accessible and effective behavioral health system for everyone. We can do so much more by working together and talking about it. Until next time, I'm Renee Schulte, the recovering politician. And I'm Jason Hagelin, the khaki farmer. Thanks for listening to the Stepping In It podcast.